Chapter Two of John Stuart Mill: His Life and Works. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. John Stuart Mill: His Life and Works. His Career in the India House by W. T. Thornton. I have undertaken to prepare a sketch of Mr. Mill's official career, but find, on inquiry, scarcely anything to add to the few particulars on the subject which have already found their way into print. Of his early official associates, all have, with scarcely an exception, already passed away, and there is no one within reach to whom I can apply for assistance in verifying or correcting my own impressions. These are in substance the following. In the last few decades of its existence, the East India Company's establishment, in Leadenhall Street, consisted of three divisions—the secretaries, military secretaries, and examiners' offices, in the last of which most of the dispatches and letters were composed which were afterwards signed by the directors or the secretary. Into this division, in the year 1821, the directors, perceiving an infusion of new blood to be very urgently required, introduced as assistant examiners four outsiders—Mr. Strachey, father of the present Sir John and Major General Richard Strachey, Thomas Love Peacock, author of Headlong Hall, Mr. Harcourt, and Mr. James Mill. The selection of the last named being all the more creditable to them, because in his history of British India he had animadverted with much severity on some parts of the company's administration. Two years afterwards, in 1823, the historian's son, the illustrious subject of these brief memoirs, then a lad of seventeen, obtained a clerkship under his father, according to the ordinary course of things in those days, the newly appointed junior would have had nothing to do, except a little abstracting, indexing, and searching, or pretending to search, into records. But young Mill was almost immediately set to indict dispatches to the governments of the three Indian presidencies, on what, in India House phraseology, were distinguished as political subjects subjects, that is, for the most part, growing out of the relations of the said governments with native states or foreign potentates. This continued to be his business almost to the last. In 1828 he was promoted to be assistant examiner, and in 1856 he succeeded to the post of chief examiner, after which his duty consisted rather in supervising what his assistants had written than in writing himself. But for the three and twenty years preceding, he had had immediate charge of the political department, and had written almost every political dispatch of any importance, that conveyed the instructions of the merchant princes of Leadenhall Street to their proconsuls in Asia. Of the quality of these documents it is sufficient to say that they were John Mills. But in respect to their quantity, it may be worth mentioning that a descriptive catalogue of them completely fills a small quarto volume of between three hundred and four hundred pages, in their author's handwriting, which now lies before me. Also that the share of the court of directors in the correspondence between themselves and the Indian governments used to average annually about ten huge vellum-bound volumes, foolscap size, and five or six inches thick, and that of these volumes two a year, for more than twenty years running, were exclusively of Mill's composition. This, too, at times, when he was engaged upon such voluntary work in addition as his logic and political economy. In 1857 broke out the Sepoy War, 
and in the following year the East India Company was extinguished in all but the name, its governmental functions being transferred to the Crown. That most illustrious of corporations died hard, and with what affectionate loyalty Mill struggled to avert its fate is evidenced by the famous petition to Parliament which he drew up for his old masters, and which opens with the following effective antithesis. Your petitioners, at their own expense, and by the agency of their own civil and military servants, originally acquired for this country its magnificent empire in the East. The foundations of this empire were laid by your petitioners, at that time neither aided nor controlled by Parliament, at the same period at which a succession of administrations under the control of Parliament were losing, by their incapacity and rashness, another great empire on the opposite side of the Atlantic. I am fortunate enough to be the possessor of the original manuscript of this admirable state paper, which I mention because I once heard its real authorship denied in that quarter of all others in which it might have been supposed to be least likely to be questioned, on one of the last occasions of the gathering together of the proprietors of East India stock, I could scarcely believe my ears when one of the directors alluding to the petition spoke of it as having been written by a certain other official, who was sitting by his side, adding, after a moment's pause, with the assistance as he understood of Mr. Mill, likewise present. As soon as the court broke up, I burst into Mill's room, boiling over with indignation, and exclaiming, What an infamous shame! and no doubt adding a good deal more that followed in natural sequence on such an exordium. What's the matter? replied Mill, as soon as he could get a word in. Mr. the director was quite right. The petition was the joint work of Blank and myself. How can you be so perverse? I retorted. You know that I know you wrote every word of it. No, rejoined Mill. You are mistaken. One whole line on the second page was put in by blank. In August 1858 the East India Company's doom was pronounced by Parliament. The East India House was completely reorganized, its very name being changed into that of the India Office, and a Secretary of State and Council taking the place of the Court of Directors. But a change of scarcely secondary importance to many of those immediately concerned was Mill's retirement on a pension. A few months after he had left us, an attempt was made to bring him back. At that time only one half of the council were nominated by the Crown, the other half having been elected, and the law prescribing that any vacancy among these latter should be filled by election on the part of the remaining elected members. On the first occasion of the kind that occurred, Mill was immediately proposed, and I had the honour of being commissioned to sound him on the subject of the intended offer and to endeavour to overcome the objections to acceptance which it was feared he might entertain. I went accordingly to his house on Blackheath, but had no sooner broached the subject than I saw that my mission was hopeless. The anguish of his recent bereavement was as yet too fresh. He sought eagerly for some slight alleviation of despair in hard literary labour, but to face the outside world was for the present impossible. Here my scanty record must end unless I may be permitted to supplement its meagerness by one or two personal, not to say egotistical, reminiscences. The death of Mr. Mill, Sr., in 1836, had occasioned a vacancy at the bottom of the examiner's office, to which I was appointed through the kindness of Sir James Carnac, then chairman of the company, in whose gift it was. Within a few months, however, I was transferred to a newly created branch of the secretary's office owing to which cause, and perhaps also to a little, or not a little, mutual shyness, 
I for some years came so seldom into contact with Mr. Mill that, though he of course knew me by sight, we scarcely ever spoke, and generally passed each other without any mark of recognition when we happened to meet in or out of doors. Early in 1846, however, I sent him a copy of a book I had just brought out, on overpopulation. A day or two afterwards he came into my room to thank me for it, and during the half-hour's conversation that thereupon ensued, sprang up, full-grown at its birth, an intimate friendship, of which I feel that I am not unduly boasting in declaring it to have been equally sincere and fervent on both sides. From that time, for the next ten or twelve years, a day seldom passed without, if I did not go into his room, his coming into mine, often telling me, as he entered, that he had nothing particular to say, but that, having a few minutes to spare, he thought we might as well have a little talk. And what talks we have had on such occasions, and on what various subjects! And not unfrequently, too, when the room was Mills, Grote the historian would join us, first announcing his advent by a peculiar and ever-welcome rat-tat with his walking-stick on the door. I must not dwell longer over these recollections, but there are two special obligations of my own to Mill which I cannot permit myself to pass over. When in 1856 he became examiner, he had made it, as I have been since assured by then-chairman of the East India Company, a condition of his acceptance of the post, that I, whose name was very likely the chairman had never before heard, should be associated with him as one of his assistant examiners and I was placed, in consequence, in charge of the Public Works Department. Not long afterwards, having lapsed into a state of nervous weakness which for nearly a year absolutely incapacitated me for mental labour, I should, but for Mill, have been compelled to retire from the service. From this, however, he saved me, by quietly taking upon himself, and for the space of twelve months discharging the whole of my official duties, in addition to his own. Is it wonderful that such a man, supposed by those who did not know him to be cold, stern, and dry, should have been enthusiastically beloved by those who did? It is little to say that my own friendship with him was, from first to last, never once ruffled by difference or misunderstanding of any kind. Differences of opinion we had in abundance, but my open avowal of them was always recognized by him as one of the strongest proofs of respect and served to cement instead of weakening our attachment. Footnote. I may be permitted here, without Mr. Thornton's knowledge, to recall a remark made by Mr. Mill only a few weeks ago. We were speaking of Mr. Thornton's recently published old-fashioned ethics and common-sense metaphysics, when I remarked on Mr. Mill's wide divergence from most of the views contained in it. Yes, he replied, it is pleasant to find something on which to differ from Thornton. Mr. Mill's prompt recognition of the importance of Mr. Thornton's refutation of the wage-fund theory is only one out of numberless instances of his particular magnanimity. End footnote. The nearest approach made throughout our intercourse to anything of an unpleasant character was about the time of his retirement from the India House. Talking over that one day with two or three of my colleagues, I said it would not do to let Mill go without receiving some permanently visible token of our regard. The motion was no sooner made than it was carried by acclamation. Every member of the examiner's office, for we jealously insisted on confining the affair to ourselves, came tendering his subscription, scarcely waiting to be asked. In half an hour's time, some fifty or sixty pounds, I forget the exact sum, was collected which in due course was invested in a superb silver inkstand, designed by our friend Digby Wyatt. 
and manufactured by Misters Elkington. Before it was ready, however, an unexpected trouble arose. In some way or other Mill had got wind of our proceeding, and coming to me in consequence, began almost to upbraid me as its originator. I had never before seen him so angry. He hated all such demonstrations, he said, and was quite resolved not to be made the subject of them. He was sure they were never altogether genuine or spontaneous. There were always several persons who took part in them, merely because they did not like to refuse. And in short, whatever we might do, he would have none of it. In vain I represented how eagerly everybody, without exception, had come forward, that we had now gone too far to recede, that if he would not take the inkstand we should be utterly at a loss what to do with it, and that I myself should be in a specially embarrassing position. Mill was not to be moved. This was a question of principle, and on principle he could not give way. There was nothing left, therefore, but resort to a species of force. I arranged with Misters Elkington that our little testimonial should be taken down to Mr. Mill's house at Blackheath by one of their men, who, after leaving it with the servant, should hurry away without waiting for an answer. This plan succeeded. But I have always suspected, though she never told me so, that its success was mainly due to Miss Helen Taylor's good offices. But for her, the inkstand would almost certainly have been returned, instead of being promoted, as it eventually was, to a place of honour in her own and her father's drawing-room. Mine is scarcely just now the mood in which I should have been naturally disposed to relate anecdotes like this. But, in the execution of my present task, I have felt bound chiefly to consider what would be likely to interest the reader? End of chapter two. Recording by Bill Borst.